Geneva College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Friday afternoon, <coughs> October 22, <coughs> 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, continuing the study of Unger's book, Archaeology in the Old Testament, beginning from page 231 and syllabus question 417. Now, anybody have questions on the part from 406 to 416? Uh, we can take a look at the statue. This deals with the reign of Solomon. Yeah, Mr. Bates. 406. What has archaeology shown concerning the general character of Solomon's architectural product, project? Is that the right question? I got some of the numbers given in my notebook. All right. Anybody want to answer that? All right, Mr. Nay. Yeah, extensive, ornate, um, and built in the style of what country? Where did he get his style? Phoenicia. The Phoenicians uh, came to the ancient Canaanites. This is the area of Tyre and Sidon. They were rich and uh, culturally advanced, extremely wicked, however, but they were the great seafarers of ancient times, and uh, in the technical skills, that the architecture was simply miles ahead of the Israelites. And so Hunger uh, says that Saul's uh, architecture, and even that of David, I guess, was crude in comparison with what Solomon put up, which was copied from Phoenician models, and part of it actually done by Phoenician architects, I suppose, with Israelite persons working with them. Saul's was heavy and strong but crude, and Solomon's was... Um, uh, had a, a finished architectural beauty and grace. Now, um, it goes on from there. Anybody got another one? Wanna... All right, Mr. Nay. Well, a tire inside, and they were um, two separate cities, of course, with a few miles between, but at this time of Solomon, they were really one political uh, entity under a single government. They were, they were merged or fused as one country. You realize the Phoenicians never had any backcountry. Their whole office was on the sea. And just a little bit in land, why, that was the border of their, of their authority. And their whole, whole trade and everything else depended on the sea. They sailed as far as what is today England, and they sailed past Gibraltar and down the coast of Africa. And there is some evidence that they disputed, however, that they sailed clear around Africa, the whole length, out through the Mediterranean, and down and clear around Africa and up the east side and uh, maybe uh, to, the, to the Red Sea or perhaps even to India. So they were quite some people, all right. Later they had uh, this uh, championship of the seas was disputed between the Greeks and the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians, uh, well, the, uh, the Greeks challenged it and the Phoenicians had the nastiest habit if they met a Greek ship on the high seas to uh, throw the captain and crew overboard and steal the ship. And the Greeks uh, resented this, quite understandably. <laughs> now, uh, all right, um, Mr. Bates. 413. 4.13. Does anybody have one before that, before we get to that? All right. Uh, no. Well, this is the picture in the book, page 170, 171. I will show you what this was. It's a better idea than I could possibly describe it. Um, at the top right, facing 171. Your book got a picture in there? It doesn't? And it's got two pages of, of just uh, pictures. Oh, I'm 
TWA for Transworld Airlines and used to be WPA for <coughs> Works Progress Administration. Somebody said that really means we put it around. <laughs> but <coughs> uh, abbreviations like that, UNESCO is, is a word similar to that, taken from a place. And uh, this would be in Hebrew, Boaz would be um, the uh, key word of the phrase, my strength is in him. And anybody that uh, married a fellow named Boaz? Not Rachel, he married Jacob. Uh, Ruth, the Moabite, married uh, Boaz, and one of my students said the second husband of Ruth was a man named Bozo. <laughs> um, not quite. Boaz, a pious name of a godly man, my strength is in him. And Jachin would be, Yakin, uh, uh, Y-A-K-I-N, means he will establish. So uh, this would be... Um, uh, the Lord will establish thy throne forever, uh, is the phrase that is suggested as the, the whole thing, but they just put up, the, they call it Jacob for short. This is Jacob and that Boaz, and these two pillars with the fire order are crescent on the top. Now, um, who else has one? All right, Mr. Bay. Hmm, 413. How many? 413, about the cherubim. Yeah. Yeah. A cherubim, uh, if you want to know the reality of the cherubim, or do you want to know the images that they had in the temple? Well, the images. All right. The cherubim were evidently um, human-headed animal figures, similar to those found in uh, Babylonian. And in the Israelite a biblical system, uh, for instance, a winged lion with a human head, there's a picture on there just to the left of that one about the uh, photoelectric column. That's a picture of a cherub. Incidentally, the singular of this word is cherub, G-H-E-R-U-B. And the plural is uh, Hebrew masculine noun forms a plural by adding I-M and a feminine noun by adding O-T-H or E-T-H to the end. So cherubim is masculine plural. And to add another S to that is redundant and superfluous, and the King James Version does it so. Cherubim. Like you'd say, one mouth, two mice, three mice. <laughs> Only Gollum in the Lord of the Rings talks like that. If you've read that book, you read that. <laughs> That's the way Gollum talks. Yeah, Gollum. But anyhow, uh, cherub or cherubim, or cherubs, if you want to use a plain English plural. And apparently these were um, ideal representations of spirit beings uh, set to guard the holiness of God, the approach to God, to mark off the approach to God and remind people of God's greatness and his holiness. And the actual motif would be copied from something well known in, in many religions of the ancient Near East. These, these things have been found in them. Near Nineveh, and uh, super life size. Uh, one with a human head and the body of a bull, another human head and the body of a lion. And uh, as used in Solomon's temple, they did not convey any pagan meaning, but certainly, as we see from other parts of scripture, they represented a sort of a uh, boundary mark-off of the holiness of God. This is what you see of them in the New Testament, book of Revelation, it speaks of the cherubim or the cherubs, and uh, this is how they use them. There's a revelation of uh, by angels to uh, be Well, sure. Uh, 
Cherubim them are a different order of beings from angels. The Bible speaks of seraphim, Isaiah 6. Cherubim speaks of angels and archangels. And there are evidently various orders of spirit or supernatural beings. And uh, these are not simply, I suppose angels would be an inclusive category, maybe you would include them all perhaps. This book I read on um, the Bible and flying saucers by the Reverend Mr. Downing, Presbyterian minister, says the flying saucers are piloted by angels, but they mean us no harm. They're uh, observing this world, getting ready for the second coming of the Lord. I read a fascinating book, although uh, the author admits it's partly speculated. <laughs> Anyhow, um, have you heard of anybody being harmed by a flying saucer or anything in it? Really? Hurt by it? Burn. Burn. Well, they should have got it out of the road. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, that's the uh, 4.13. This is a common theme or motif in ancient Near Eastern religious art. But like lots of other features used in the Bible, close with a meaning linked up to God's special revelation and therefore not to be understood in terms of its pagan connotation somewhere else. Now, who else has one? All right, Mary. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wait a minute. What number is that? Four, four. Yeah. Uh, the vision of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the King James Version of the Bible, this is translated uh, a number of places, between the cherubim. Psalm 80, verse 1, 1 Samuel 4, 4, and some other places, between the cherubim. But uh, from archaeological discovery of this kind of um, paraphernalia found here and there, it is evident that the cherubim were uh, a support for the Ark of the Covenant. It was above them, not between them. It may have been between them, but above them, resting on the backs of these bronze uh, or other kind of figures. And uh, this is... Um, uh, in the King James Version, the word between is in italics. What does that mean? One man said, when you see a word in italics in the Bible, you're always supposed to emphasize it. Is that right, Mr. Brown? You emphasize the words in italics? What does it mean when a word's in italics? It's in It's not there at all in the original. It's a word that isn't in the original sentence at all, but you have to put it in in English to make it, according to the rules of English language, to make it make sense. And it's a word that is not found in the original. All languages differ in their structure, of course. And this does not mean any real tampering with or attempt to change the Bible, but there's a book by um, Young that wrote Young's Analytical Concordance. He got out a literal translation of the Holy Bible. This fellow Young, he was a Scotsman and set up a, one of the first printing presses in uh, India. And he was quite a guy. But he claimed the only translation that is truly faithful is a literal translation. And he produced one. It has the word order of the original Greek and Hebrew. And if you'd read it in church, people would start doing this. <laughs> on the other hand, uh, if you don't want to learn Greek and Hebrew, you get a kind of a feeling for what the original's like by reading this. And the uh, words that are in italics in our English Bible, you don't just left them out. I've put those words in. Leave them out, Mr. Bates. They're out of print, but I'll show you once you come over to my office, and maybe it'll be imprinted again someday. It's been printed and reprinted. I don't know. It may be imprinted again. It was out of print for a while. Quite a book, though. And then, short of learning Hebrew and Greek, I don't know anything that will give you the feeling of the original 
better than Young's literal translation. He was considered a real psychoceramic by some of his contemporaries. You know what that word means. Do you know what it means, missionary? Psychoceramic. Anybody want to tell what that means? Fall. He bars right on it anyhow. 
and found the Holy of Holies in which only the high priest was allowed to enter and he only on the great day of atonement one day in the year with the blood of the sacrifice empty uh, the contents had been lost and the Jews thought it sacrilege to replace them so it was empty and poor Pompey couldn't dig it wrote back to Rome and said he couldn't tell you this religion that had an empty sanctuary and meaningless mystery that's the word that he used now um, 421 besides the fact that it was a permanent building and not a tent how did Solomon's temple differ from the tabernacle built in the time of Moses uh, what would you say uh, well uh, anybody now uh, Mr. James what would you say as a general answer to that mm-hmm. yeah what's the uh, how would you sum up the difference not as to details but overall comparing Solomon's temple with that built in the time of Moses. Now, of course, what Moses had put up as a tent, this was a building, but apart from that. Uh, it was, uh, every dimension was doubled. This gives a much greater size, of course, even though it still wasn't very big. But um, everything was ornate. And also, I think we should realize that God specified the details of the tabernacle built in the time of Moses. You can read chapter after chapter of the technical specifications in the latter part of the book of Exodus of the tabernacle just how it was to be done that's why it's possible to make a perfect scale model of it today because the directions are so specifically given now there's no record that God ever told Solomon all what to do in his he evidently um, not only drew on Moses but considerably on his own imagination and that of other people and so there are many features in the temple of Solomon for which you can hardly find that there was any claim made that God had prescribed this or had revealed it. And this led to the fact that whereas the tabernacle of Moses' day was, uh, let's say, it had the beauty of simplicity. The, tab- the temple as built by Solomon was ornate and, uh, let's say, uh, almost fantastic in its decorative art and features. And among other things that uh, there's no record of God commanding at all, these two pillars with the fire crescent on top and the great bronze sea. Now they had a laver in front of Moses' tabernacle that held a few gallons of water that uh, the priests could use for washing and handling these sacrifices or before. This one set up by Solomon rested on 12 oxen or bulls. There's a picture there showing what this would look like underneath that proto-heoic column. And I remember how much water this thing is figured to have held. Well, this was a considerable amount. Anybody notice? 10,000 gallons of water. And this wouldn't be as big as a swimming pool up at the new arms, but uh, 10,000 gallons. This would be a tremendous supply. Of course, it would, it would be stored there. It wouldn't use it up all the time but 10,000 gallons of water resting on the backs of 12 oxen or bulls made of cast out of bronze this took the place of a simple receptacle for water back in Moses day well I'll tell you I'm not surprised that you don't know where this thing about this 10,000 gallons I didn't get out of Andre's book this is in the new Bible commentary of the Intervarsity Fellowship so I figured out estimated conservatively at 10,000 gallons of water now Dr. Unger says that this idea of the sea here this tremendous uh, container of water 
in Near Eastern um, ideology suggested an underground ocean of fresh water that was the source of all life and fertility. And um, this, of course, um, is not the meaning of it when Solomon put it up. This was for a practical purpose here. What was the religious danger in Solomon sort of going overboard here and um, copying stuff from the Phoenicians? What, what uh, Mr. Harris, you coming on that? Yeah, there's a danger here that in copying the architecture and the technology and the artistic motifs from the Phoenicians, that um, in the process of doing this, some of the religious beliefs or creed of the Phoenicians will fall into this too. Would you say that, is that an imaginary danger or would it be real? Well, it would be real, and um, while this temple did not of itself introduce idolatry, uh, it perhaps <clears throat> encouraged people to think that maybe there wasn't very much difference between the religion of Israel and that of the Phoenicians. The temple is very similar, you see. So this would encourage people to think that. And uh, I heard of a Geneva student thinking of uh, leaving the Christian faith that she was Pentecostal and turning Jewish. And, that there was only a slight difference that the Jewish folks didn't believe in Christ. Uh, that's a slight difference, all right. <laughs> I would say that's the main thing. Anyway, uh, this um, uh, was accompanied by Solomon's multiple matrimony, and many of his wives were worshippers of um, Ishtar and other pagan divinities, and uh, they... Uh, practically demand the right to worship as they have been brought up in their childhood. <clears throat> Solomon, always the perfect gentleman, can't say no to the ladies. And so uh, little signs of um, assorted uh, Near Eastern divinities go up in Jerusalem. All of them walk limits for the people of Israel. But there they are. If the king's family can get away with it, why can't we? And so this introduced idolatry, which uh, Solomon was soft on, let's say. He was confessive about this. He didn't need to marry all those women in the first place. And if he did marry them, uh, back in his day, a man could say no. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, this introduced the, uh, the root of idolatry that formed a terrible problem later, Mr. Nary. Um, yeah. Well, this is uh, an interesting question and problem. I had a student once, a survey student in college. She graduated with top of everything, a valedictorian or something, but... She wrote a paper called, on the subject of her own choice, Solomon the Wise dash Solomon the Foolish. God told Solomon he would be the wisest of men. Now, how do you reconcile that with some of the things he did? Can you say he was wise, but he didn't choose to go by wisdom? Or is wisdom practical as well as theoretical? Married a thousand women. Allowed idolatry to be introduced. And a number of other things. I think we should realize that this promise of wisdom was given to him at the beginning of his reign uh, in, a, in a vision or dream that he had. God appeared to him in this dream and asked him to make a wish and he wished for wisdom to govern this so great a people. Therefore, this is wisdom in the field of political science. He is to be the king and the judge. You see, these, these functions were merged in ancient times. The king is also the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And this is what Solomon asked for, wisdom for the decisions that he would have to make as king and as judge. And this does not imply that he would be the wisest of all men, 
wiser even than Jesus, for example, or wiser than the Apostle Paul about all subjects whatsoever. And obviously he wasn't. And there was much in his life that um, not only wasn't wise, but that he urgently needed to repent of. And I hope he did before he died, but uh, this is not known to us. But the wisdom that he was given, which was certainly a, a promise fulfilled, was a wisdom connected with political science, let's say. And this was soon illustrated in the amazing case of the two women, each of the and Puritanical Moral, I'm afraid, each of them telling a baby, one alive and the other dead, and each claimed a live baby, you remember that story? And Solomon, his own practical psychologist, and had his own gimmick for detecting lies, he found out who was the real mother of it. And you can imagine how this story got around. Barbershop conversation in Jerusalem before the end of that day. That new king of ours is absolutely the most. The wisdom of God is in him and you can't fool him. And uh, so his reputation for wisdom was made. Now that answer your question about Solomon's wisdom. And don't go saying uh, he could marry a thousand women so I can marry a thousand men. <laughs> or a thousand women either, any of you thought. <laughs> Even two is too many. Just one. And be sure it's the right one. Dr. Pierce, the former president of Geneva, was uh, telling once that a woman back away or something, but a fellow got married, a Geneva student and, and a Geneva girl. And he says, he went after and went after and went after until she got it. <laughs> what a way to look at life. Well, it was a happy match, too. All right, now we'll go on here. This danger of religious syncretism was only too real as illustrated by the later history. And while the temple did not actually put up a sign and said it's okay to worship Baal, the very resemblance of this to Phoenician models and the, let's say, uh, oh, um, extreme ordinateness and, and so forth of it would tend to make people think that this was better than what we had before and that uh, maybe the Phoenician religion couldn't be so bad after all. So it would tend to psychologically soften the people and then when there came other, uh, other temptations about it, they would, they would uh, have a strong influence. Now, 424, what foreign power began to rise as a menace to Israel during the latter part of Solomon's reign? What was it? Syria or Aram. And it's called Syria in the Bible. Aram, A-R-A-M, would be the name used in the scholarly books on early history. The Aramean underwrote a book. He got his doctor's degree on a thesis called Israel and the Arameans of Damascus. It goes into this uh, much more detail than, than in this book on archaeology. Aram. Now, these are people kin to the Israelites, related to them, speaking a cognate but different language and centered around Damascus. Uh, this language is dead as the dead of the day. Nobody speaks it. The language of Damascus today is Arabic. But at that time, Aramean or Syrian or Aramaic or Syriac. And uh, there were five little Aramean kingdoms, each of them that pocket size and of no importance at all on the international checkerboard, which uh, finally sort of got together and merged. You know, like the atom bomb, you have a non-critical mass of uranium or whatever it is, and another non-critical mass, and another, and have a little explosion that throws all these together, and then that makes a critical mass, and that'll explode. Well, the Arameans were like this. Five little kingdoms that didn't amount to much, just little local affairs, 
But they got together finally under a single government with the capital of Damascus, and this made them uh, really something. And then they began to throw their weight around and push around, and they were a, an acute problem to the Israelites for at least 150 years, 150 to 200 years. At the time of Ahab and Jezebel and all, this was a major problem fighting the, Ara- the Arameans or the Syrians. And it had to be done. Now, uh, uh, there's a piece here about uh, Jeroboam the first who put up two golden calves. And uh, this is familiar to you from Bible 102, I'm sure. <clears throat> one at Bethel. He, he sold this to the people on the spacious plea that um, this trip to Jerusalem was too far and too much of a hardship. You know, the old wet blanket, this trip to Jerusalem, this was their annual vacation. Not go up work for a week and go to Jerusalem. And they took it easy and walked, and every day they met up with more of their cousins and relatives and stopped the camp about four o'clock and built a fire and sang songs and told stories and visited and remembered the old times, reminisced. The big time of the year. This was a really uh, enjoyable vacation, and Jeroboam says, too much for you to go to Jerusalem. We'll fix religion handy to home. And we'll have to make all that long trip. So he picked up two shrines with a golden cap, one at Dan in the far north, way up near the sources of the Jordan, and the other at Bethel, which was almost on the line between the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Now, golden cap. I like to know was the cap solid or hollow and how big was it and so forth. None of this is told to us, although these calves remained there for a long time. But the idea of this golden calf is disputed, and archaeology has suggested some things about it, and Andres suggests that, that uh, this golden calf was not really an idol. What's the idea that he suggests as to the, the significance or meaning of this? Well, uh, Mrs. Wilson? Well, this is the need to worship. You're going to pray, all right, you have to pray in some direction. Where are you going to pray to? Where are you going to pray towards? So this was, the God was regarded as invisible, but mounted on this golden calf. So the calf is, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, an aid to worship. This is uh, not uh, actually an idol, according to Hunger. And uh, it was intended for the worship of the Lord, but merely a way of focusing or localizing your devotions. Uh, the, the Lord was supposed to be invisible, but riding on this animal. Now, Mr. Brown. Why does it say in um, first Kings where he's talking about there going to the old God Well, that's it. Now, I, I personally dispute Andrew's verdict on this. And the contrary is argued in a different book, Dr. Free of Wheaton College, Archaeology and uh, Bible History, which we have downstairs in the cabinet. Dr. Free says this was simply an idol. It was comparable to the golden calf made by Aaron when Moses was up on the mountain. You recall that uh, sad incident. And a uh, copy, more or less, of the bovine worship of Egypt. You notice on one of those films we had the other day, there was uh, an Egyptian god in the form of, a, of an ox or a bull. And this was typical of the religion of Egypt. And um, the Israelites, of course, had been in Egypt a matter of centuries. And it's impossible that they wouldn't have seen this kind of thing while there. And that therefore, when, when uh, Aaron uh, said, uh, they said to Aaron, this Moses, who knows what's happened to him, make us God, he uh, made a mold and they poured in gold and, and got out this calf. And later, Moses objected and said, well, were they getting ready to lynch you or something? 
Don't blame me, Moses. I had nothing to do with it. All I did was to pour in the gold and out popped his cat. Talk about a poor excuse being better than none. Well, that is the first case of it. And you see those people recently out of Egypt. Now this other one, centuries later, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He had been a refugee, a political refugee in Egypt for a period of years. The latter part of Solomon's reign. Solomon had heard that he had been anointed to be king later, and he considered this high treason, of course, and tried to have him arrested. And Jeroboam skipped to Egypt and disappeared. Probably shaved his head like the Egyptians and took an Egyptian name and Zippo. He's known among the millions of Egypt. And Solomon couldn't find him. But later he did come back at the death of Solomon when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was being crowned king and came and made demands. And uh, Rehoboam answered the people harshly without any uh, spirit of concession at all. And this led to the split of these two kingdoms, the ten northern tribes and the two southern. This was uh, sinful, it was an evil, it broke the ideal unity, and they were doing it for wrong motives. On the other hand, it did fulfill the purpose of God to get the southern tribe, especially Judah, isolated and quarantined off from the religious contamination that was already growing in the northern part of the country. Anyway, uh, Jeroboam then set up these two golden calves. Now, he had been in Egypt and had seen this kind of idolatry, and very likely this was in his mind as a copy of that. And it's always easier to worship a God you can see than one you can't see, of course. Who would dispute that statement? So there is a possibility. Now, this is a toss-up. The old theory of this is, stated by Dr. Free and numerous other writers, that these were simply idols, copied on the model of Egypt. And the more recent theory is that this was of Arabian or Semitic origin, and that these were not idols, but that the God was regarded as invisible but not an only animal. So uh, you paid your tuition, you can take your choice. I uh, will agree with Dr. Free on this, but under holds the contrary. Now, the affiliations of um, the bull in, in the ancient Near Eastern religion were uh, with Baal. This was a form of sex and nature worship. The Canaanite religion essentially was a deification of the principle of fertility in nature. Of people, man, beast, and field. Fertility. And uh, this was done with uh, some rather uh, deplorable realism. But uh, apart from that, this was nature worship. So you have the religion of worshiping nature versus that of redemption through a redeemer that God will send over against it. You see, Israel's religion, when rightly understood and purely set forth, is a worship of the transcendent God who made the universe and rules over it, and who so loved the world that he was going to send his only begotten son to redeem us. Over against this, Baal worship and other forms of ancient Near Eastern and Canaanite worship, essentially a worship of nature, rather than the God who created nature. And then this uh, nature theme was brought out by uh, representing the gods in these different ways, including the ox or the bull. And the fertility cult to the groves of Asherah were also tied in with this. Now, we were supposed to go to 437, maybe we've got 10 minutes to go here.